Well, good morning. It's good to uh, be back with you. Uh, we are wrapping up our series uh, this weekend called United. Uh, if you've not been here in the last couple of weeks or if you're new, we are working together with 10 other churches over this, uh, these four weeks. We have been, these 10 churches have been delivering the same sermon. And not only have we been delivering the same sermon, but we've also been kind of swapping uh, pulpits and platforms. So I was at uh, Southbrook Church two weeks ago in Franklin, and last week I was at Elmbrook Lake Country in Heartland. And when I was at one of those churches, you know, it's 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 always interesting to speak at new places because like, I've been doing this a long time, and I get I still get a little nervous when I come out here. And I like I know all your faces. Like I know which ones of you are going to nod. I know which ones of you fall asleep every week so I don't look over there. Like I know. But when you go to a new place, I don't you don't know. You don't know where where is it safe to look. And so I I was at one church last week and in between services this older woman walked up to me and she looked me in the eye and she said, "You know, when you started talking, I didn't really know about you." Like <laughs> Okay, and then she said, but I guess it ended okay. And I'm like, is that a compliment or an insult? I don't even know. So I'm glad to be back here with you. John chapter 17, Hebrews chapter 10 are the two places we're going to uh, find ourselves today. Over the last four weeks, we've been wrestling with a fundamental question. And the question is, what exactly is the church? What was Jesus talking about when he used that word and is what we're doing what he had in mind? When you scour the pages of the New Testament, you find many words that are used to describe Christ's church. But there is one word that comes up over and over and over, and that is the word unity. It is a word that is used to describe the function and the ethos of Christ's church. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays a prayer right before he's crucified. And towards the end of that prayer, Jesus gives us his vision for unity in the Christian church. John chapter 17, beginning in verse 20, Jesus is praying. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them, you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them, even as you have loved me. Of all the things that Jesus could have said or prayed right before he was going to die, this was his prayer. That they, that you and I, a prayer that echoes through time, we may be one, is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit are one. Because see, when the church is divided, there's a lot of things happening. The first is, I believe, that when the church is divided, God is disgusted. There's a proverb, Proverbs 6, 
There are six things the Lord hates and seven that are an abomination. Like the word abomination is a strong word. Like I don't use the word abomination regularly in my speech. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands and feet that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord or division amongst brothers. When you move into the New Testament, in the book of Titus, we find this warning. Warn a divisive person once, and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. Like those, are, those are strong words. See, when the church is divided, God is disgusted and the world is confused. So you and I, we represent a God that's loving and gracious and compassionate and, and kind and, and good. And most people that I know already have like enough drama in their life as it is without needing to step into a church and find even more. See, when the church is divided, God is disgusted, the world is confused, and the devil sits back and laughs. <laughs> I don't have to do anything because they're doing it to themselves. Jesus said that unity and love, that is our apologetic. The word apologetic coming from the Latin, which means to defend and not to apologize. Therefore, Christian apologetics is the defense of the Christian faith. And Jesus said, you really want to defend your faith? Here's what you do. First, Jesus said, they will know, the world will know, that you are my followers by the love that you have for one another. And then Jesus prayed again in John chapter 17, and they will know that God loves them by the unity they witness in the church. Like the way that people know that God loves them is through the actions of us. And Jesus prayed, I and them, you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What a divided world desperately needs is the United Church. I mean, this is how I came to faith in Christ. Like, I wish I could tell you I heard a sermon that changed my whole world or that I had like this vision of an angel that came to me like the Virgin Mary and none of that happened. I came to faith in Christ because I saw a bunch of people in a church that loved each other, that walked together in unity and I thought, whatever that is, I want that. Now keep in mind, unity is not sameness because you and I we'll probably disagree on a lot of things. You can have diversity of opinion and still be united. So what do we do? How do we do it? I mean, because what I want to do is I just want to go to whichever church will give me a platform and I just want to step up and just yell, can we just stop it? But that doesn't usually work. We, I have a, a three-month-old golden doodle right now. His name is Arlo. And he's super cute, but he bites. And I know he's just playing, but it hurts. He has 28 little needles in his mouth. And I walk up to him and he bites me and I bleed and I don't like it. And I will often yell at him, stop it. You know what? He doesn't stop. He doesn't understand those words. So I hired a trainer who is helping me to get this dog to stop biting me. And it's like, it's kind of working at least it's working a whole lot better than just yelling, stop it. 
And so because stop it doesn't work in really any venue, I want us to turn together this morning to the book of Hebrews because the book of Hebrews gives us a great starting point for the recovery of unity. Now, we don't know for sure who wrote the book of Hebrews. There's lots of theories, but we do know who it was written to and why it was written. The book of Hebrews was written to a church, a group of people who were beginning to lose their way. The the church was starting to experience some division. And so the book of Hebrews begins with a series of warnings. So for instance, in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, the writer begins by saying, in fact, though by this time some of you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. In other words, the the author of Hebrews is saying, look, it's time to grow up. It's time to be mature. And then from that place, this author gives us the starting point for Christian unity. See, when, when God's people are more concerned about the cares of this world than we are the kingdom of God, nothing will ever change. And so I'm, I'm believing God for something, and I'm going to ask you to believe with me. I'm going to ask you this week to pray with me. I am praying that somehow God will bring unity to his church. And I'm not just talking about this church. I'm talking about every church that we can see past those things that divide us and unite because there's a lot at stake. And there are some things that we can unite around that I think we would all agree on. And the first is this. We unite around the finished work of Jesus. The writer of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9, he says this. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, the source, the center, and the foundation for who we are, what we do, what we believe, all of our spiritual growth, all of our discipleship, everything is the blood of Christ, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Jesus was crucified not only for my sins, and the sins of the world, but Jesus was also crucified to end our differences and bring unity to his church. When the early church began to organize itself, they wrote a series of creeds that would bring them together. Many of you know many of them. One of the most famous is the Apostles' Creed, and it starts like this. I believe in God the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. Like, like that's enough for me. That right there. I, I I can come together around that. Our unity is then strengthened as we draw near to God together. Back to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Now in these passages, the author is, is making a comparison to Judaism particularly the temple, the dwelling place of God. In the Old Testament, when God's people were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, in the desert, they carried with them a tent or a tabernacle. And wherever they would camp, they would set this tent up, and it was the place that God's presence dwelt. Now, a more permanent structure was built by Solomon. And in that 
temple built by Solomon was a place in the very center called the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's presence dwelt and the Holy of Holies was separated by a large, thick curtain because the common people could not enter into the presence of God. The only person that could ever draw near to God was the priest, and that was only at certain times during the year. But Jesus, through his death on the cross, removed the separation, and he opened the way with his body, which is why when you read some of the crucifixion accounts, that the temple veil was torn in two, that you and I now have complete access to God. When I'm here in my office and I have just a lot of work to do that I I need to think deeply about, I put a sign on my door that says, do not disturb, and I put it on red paper because red is an angry color. And I want people to know that if you knock on that door, there better be like death in the air because I'm busy. Now, this past summer, uh, my daughter, like every summer at Northbrook, we uh, we hire some teenagers to work on our with our maintenance and facilities crew to like pull weeds and do those kind of jobs. So my daughter got one of those jobs because she knew a guy, and so they hired her. And she would come in on the uh, during the week, and she would put her purse and her keys in my office, and then she'd go work. And on her break, she would come in, and even if the big red sign was on the door. She would just fling it open, walk in, shut it, wouldn't even check to see if I was meeting with anybody. She'd just walk in and sit down. And you know why she did that? Because she's my kid. And she has complete access to her daddy. You and I, we now have the same kind of confidence to enter into God's presence, which is all around. We're his kids. He's our, our dad, our father. See, when we together focus on drawing near to God in worship, in our own spiritual growth, in mission, those points of division begin to wane and fade. And it's from that place that we can unite around that hope that we say that we have. Verse 23, back to the book of Hebrews. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess for he who promised is faithful. I mean, hope really is the substance of our faith. And the word faith, it doesn't just mean to believe in something. The word faith has a deeper connotation. It also means to trust. So when I say I believe in Christ, what I'm really saying is I I trust in him. My hope is in him. Because listen, I I meet a lot of hopeless people who have had the very foundations of their world shaken, and what they're looking for is hope made visible. When I was in school, I I hated school, by the way, when I was a kid, and I, in the winter, I like longed for snow days, like when school was canceled because there was too much snow, which in Buffalo wasn't very often because we could have six feet and still have to go. But every once in a while, there'd be a snow day. And I would watch the Buffalo Evening News with my parents, and if the meteorologist said, this could be a big one, oh, my hope would rise. (laughs) Because on snow days, I'd go sledding with my friends. We'd play King of the Hill. My mom would make hot chocolate. We'd have macaroni and cheese. I love snow days. The meteorologist is the one that would give me hope. But I'll tell you, hope became visible 
when I opened the door and started to see the flakes of snow start to make their way to the ground. Yes! Hope for the world becomes visible through God's people. What a hopeless world desperately needs is a united and hopeful church. Not a judgmental church, not a divided church, not a self-righteous church, not a discouraged church, a hopeful, united church. And in that hope, see, you and I, we unite together in good work. Verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another. Some translations say stir up one another towards love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Years ago, I read a book called 1776. I tell this story every October during Operation Love Your Neighbor. The book 1776 was a book of the American Revolutionary War, and one of the things that I discovered in that book is that many of the colonists who fought against Britain never referred to the war as the war, but they referred to what they were fighting as the glorious cause. We're engaged in a glorious cause. What is the glorious cause of the church? Because it's got to be more than keeping the lights on. It's got to be more than paying the bills, keeping the doors open. It's got to be more than nice programs and doctrinal positions. It's got to be more. The Apostle Paul gave me the answer to that question, what is the glorious cause of the church, when he writes in the book of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 6, the only thing that counts is faith, my trust in Christ, expressing itself through love, through loving deeds in the world. So let's stir each other up to good work. Let's unite around good work. That word spur on or stir up can also mean like a strong jab given to someone so that they'll respond. Like, uh, I'm not a night person, so right around nine o'clock, like all systems shut down. I become a pumpkin. I don't like being out after nine o'clock at night. Like, I don't need a watch. I can feel nine o'clock. Like, nine o'clock has a feeling. Occasionally, we'll find ourselves out with some friends past nine o'clock, maybe at a restaurant. And I still just kind of go into shutdown mode and my wife hates it. And she hates it because she thinks it's embarrassing because I'm being rude to the people that were sitting across because everything about my expression says I want out. And so what she'll do is she'll kick me in the shin under the table. She'll give me a jab to kind of remind me that we're still with, with people. There's a lot of people right now stirred up about a lot of things. What if we instead stirred one another towards love and good works? Because I wonder, what, what, is, what does the conversation look like when we spend time together, when we're kind of stirring the pot? Like, what do you talk about when you're with your friends, maybe today after church at lunch, or maybe during the week at a coffee shop? But what do you talk about? The weather? Politics, because that's life-giving, right? Can't talk about the Packers anymore. Or the Bills. <laughs> I was at uh, 
Panera bread, and I was sitting at a, a table in a corner. My back was turned towards everybody, just trying to do some things, and there was a group of people behind me. They're talking pretty loud, and the, the conversation turned towards their church and their pastor, and they were saying really awful things. And so I turned to make sure it was nobody from Northbrook because that would have been awkward. And it wasn't, thankfully. Uh, uh, not to say that doesn't happen, but not in that moment, which was good. And I, I, I look back on that event, and I just wish, there's just times I wish I was more bold. I wish I like, had more guts. Because like, I wish I would have just turned and said, hey, you know, that really doesn't help. I mean, what if you guys instead talked about ways that you can just do good in the world in Jesus' name. Yeah, your church isn't perfect. Neither is your pastor. He's a person just like you. Because we all kind of, we all kind of are wired to want to do good. In our creation, all the way back in the book of Genesis, God looked at people and he said, it's very good. And there's that, that's in there somewhere in all of us. It's, it's even deep down inside in children, right? When my kids were little, we started sponsoring uh, two kids through Compassion International and Interneeds, International Needs. And we sponsored these kids every month. And so I brought my kids in to explain to them why we were doing this. I want to teach them that it's good to be generous and we should help people that aren't as fortunate as, as us. And so we started supporting these kids. And I looked at Hannah and I said, do you, do you understand why we're doing this? She said, yeah. And then she just kind of took off. Like, maybe she didn't get it. I don't know. Moments later, she comes running down the stairs with her piggy bank. And she says, Dad, I want to give all my money to that girl because I know she doesn't have what we have. Like that, that does something to us, right? Because we were created to want to do good. I know people that have taken drastic pay cuts because they want to make a difference in the world. And sometimes we think that in order to do good work, we have to do something drastic, and dramatic. We got to change the world. But listen, I think we need to change the narrative. Because sometimes changing the world is as simple as changing someone's world. There's a, there's a, uh, a village in Ghana, West Africa called Lesevenu. Northbrook partners with that village. We've sent many people there and there's a group of women in our church. Some of you are probably in here now and the group of women in our church learned that in that village there are young girls that miss a week of school every single month because they do not have access to hygiene products. There's no CVS, there's no Walgreens, and so they just have to stay home. Well, this group of women also happened to be into sewing, and they found out that you can sew reusable hygiene kits for young girls, and so they started doing that, and they sent hundreds and thousands of these hygiene kits to this village in Africa, and guess what happened? A whole bunch of girls stopped missing school every week because a bunch of ladies at Northbrook who like to sew said, well, we can do something about that. Now, I suppose in that group, that's a diverse group, there are things they disagree with. suppose that's possible. I suppose they have different opinions on the things happening in the world right now, but they've chosen to come together to do good and to do it in Jesus' name. Like, I can get excited about that. Our student ministry recently made a commitment to dig a well in a third world country for people that do not have access to clean water. And so 
Pastor John and Pastor Janelle in the student ministry set this audacious, crazy goal for a bunch of teenagers. We're going to raise $6,000 to dig this well. Now, listen, I I have teenagers, right? I know how teenagers deal with money, right? And and so $6,000 is a pretty audacious goal for a bunch of teenagers, right? But Pastor John put the charge. We're just going to dig this well. And they didn't raise 6000 They raised $12,000 because they united around a cause and they did it in Jesus' name. The world desperately needs a glittering image, a picture of God. And they get that picture by looking at you and by looking at me. There's a lot at stake. So my prayer, I'm... I, asking you pray with me this week that God will bring unity to his church that we unite around the finished work of Jesus that we can unite around our drawing near of God together as we worship and disciple can we draw together under the hope that we have and can we unite around doing good work because for me that's enough It's enough for a world that desperately needs a message of hope. So we're going to close today by singing a final song that will serve as our closing prayer. And so I'm going to ask you to stand with me and join the worship team in this final song.